Welcome to the Best of MBS, where you can enjoy some of the best interviews by Michael Bungay-Stanier, author of The Coaching Habit and How to Begin. Lots of people who are on this podcast with me, people I know a little bit, people I respect for this particular angle into this idea of we will get through this and how do you build resilience? And they might come from a military background or a financial background or a self-care background. And it's fantastic getting those perspectives. But nobody really I know is coming on this podcast who goes, look, what I do is I do resilience. I think about leadership and I think about resilience. So this guest is perfect for this conversation because this is a woman who is grounded in understanding resilience from an academic perspective. She has a PhD from a uh, corporate practical experience. She was uh, head of executive leadership development at Nike, uh, global leadership development at Cigna. She is She's uh, an author or soon to be an author. She's got a new book coming out called Flourish or Fold, The Five Practices of Particularly Resilient People. So how perfect to get into this conversation. And I'm really excited to introduce you to Dr. Taryn Marie. So Taryn Marie, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. What a, what an honor to be a guest of yours. Well, you, you may be over-egging the pudding there, but we'll go with that. Um, I, don't, I don't know what it means to over-egg a pudding. But... <laughs> it means to flatter me more than I deserve. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. That's a, that's a, that is a weird British... That, I inherited that from my father. You know, my favorite. I don't think I even understand what that means, but we'll move, we'll move along. Um, look, you know a lot about resilience and here's my guess. I bet you see the flow of stuff that's, that flows through popular culture about resilience. And I bet you there's some part of that that irritates you. <laughs> you look at it and going, nah, that's an old myth. That's an old story. I don't know who made that up, but it's wrong. What, let's start by asking, what do we get wrong about resilience? Yeah, well, you're you're right. Like, um, con- I, I'm convicted by your comment, which is <laughs> yes, I am not always in a place of my higher self, mm-hmm. and when I'm not in that place of my higher self, and I see models that exist out there that just seem as though someone has just sort of made them up and yep. and put them on the shelf. You know, there's there's part of me that's like, well, how do we know that works? How do we know what we're mm-hmm. we're teaching people? And so, you know, I th- I think the first the first piece for me, you know, coming from a research background, is having some kind of empirical evidence right. around what we're telling people uh, creates resilience, promotes resilience, enhances resilience. That we haven't just taken a model. Uh, and and put together you know five words that start with the same letter because we like alliteration. <laughs> exactly. Um, that's that's a it's a it's a it's a pet peeve of mine for sure. You know, on the other hand, though, um, having a having a framework um, that helps us understand a concept like resilience is always helpful. You know, mm-hmm. kind of ab- absent other things. But, you know, I think the first thing is having an empirical or, or sort of a research base, right? That tells right. us that what we're investing in um, is is going to be worth our time, right? The, the, I'll, I'll use a, a food analogy too. How about that? Um, the, the juice is worth the squeeze. As right. I, say. I love that. 
Um, I haven't heard that saying. It's so like over, it's okay. I'm overegging your pudding. You're squeezing the juice. <laughs> there's a whole crazy. there's a whole that's food crazy. theme developing nicely in this whole conversation. <laughs> exactly. I love it. I love it. So so that's you know that's the first thing, and my my work in resilience arose out of. Um, thinking, wow, resilience, that sounds like a really interesting concept. I'd like to know more about that. And, you know, probably 12 or 15 years ago, I I did what one does or one did. And I looked it up in the dictionary. (laughs) What does this word mean? Right. And I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out what it meant. It was sort of a circular definition to be resilient meant to demonstrate resilience and resilience meant to be resilient. And I was like, but you know, that doesn't help. Yeah. How, how, (laughs) you know, right. What's the practical element of this. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as I've spent now over a decade trying to understand the how, trying to understand how we can actually leverage this kind of high level concept of resilience and what that means for us as humans when we're in moments of challenge, change, and complexity and and putting some real research or or some real kind of, you know, teeth into understanding what those behaviors are. So the the first thing is having a, you know, an empirical or kind of a research base. I love that. And I know that's the heart of your company, Resilience Leadership. But maybe I could even ask you this: How do how do you define resilience? I mean, if we if we're trying to get beyond the circular resilience as being more resilient, which is not that helpful, how do you mm. talk about resilience? Yeah. So there's the first, you know, in it there there's three kind of myths and truths of resilience, mm. and I lo- I love your emphasis on talking about you know what a concept is and what a concept is not. Mm-hmm. And so the first myth of resilience is um, this phrase that we use a lot in the English language, but we don't think about it a lot. Uh, and, and we talk a lot about bouncing back. Right. And so what resilience isn't is bouncing back. Nice. Because if we think about this from a we think about this from a, a personal lived experience, if we think about this from a neuropsychological experience, every experience that we have in our lives fundamentally and forever changes us in small and large ways. Right. And therefore, once we've had an experience, we don't go back to the way that we were before that experience. Mm-hmm. Right? We never go back. Right. You can never stand in the same river twice. You can never stand in the same river twice. And so rather than thinking about bouncing back, because what this has also become is a relatively unhelpful phrase because mm-hmm. I've met with so many leaders and, and you know, we're in the midst of this whole, you know, sort of corona virus, global pandemic upheaval, what the heck is happening? (laughs) Exactly. You know, I have no, no template or, you know, manual for this situation. You know, people have talked about, well, I can't wait until we go back to normal. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking normal has left the building at this stage. <laughs> normal has left the building. Yeah, it's like, let's not go rushing back to normal before we know what about our normal is worth going back for. Nice. And 
one of the worst things that I think could happen in all of this, you know, aside from, you know, the incredible tax that this is putting on our healthcare system and and the loss of human life and, and tragedy, you know, I think the worst thing that could happen is that we would not allow ourselves to be changed mm. by this. So is resilience then about navigating change in a way that serves us rather than diminishes us? Mm. So if resilience isn't bouncing back, what I believe, you know, sort of relative to the, you know, myths and truths, like a really simple phrase is resilience is bouncing forward. Resilience is about understanding, you know, making meaning out of right what is happening what has happened and allowing ourselves to be again fundamentally and forever changed in ways that allow us to be both more compassionate and empathetic and to have more wisdom so um I'm looking up at the ceiling here because I'm like, my brain's going a thousand miles an hour figuring this out. So it feels as you say, resilience is bouncing forward. You've got an element in there of recovery. It could be the bounds, an element there of progress, um, which is the forward piece, but there's an element there of learning as well so that you, you see the lessons that are there so that if it, that, you know, when you talk about more empathetic, more compassionate, for me, there's a way of going, this helps you grow your humanity as part of this as well. Absolutely. And so, you know, it's a, this idea of like bouncing forward versus bouncing back. It's a, it's a two-edged sword. On the one hand, there's grief and loss associated with not going back. Mm. You know, we will lose things. We will lose businesses. We will lose friends. We will lose family members. We will live, lose parts of ourselves in this process. And it is right for us to grieve those losses. Mm -hmm. And we will also gain immensely from this. And, and that's what makes, uh, resilience so dynamic. That's what makes it, um, a kaleidoscope in a way, because um, like so many things, it's not good or bad. It's, it's both. Turn Marie, how do I find the right line between the light and the dark? Because you're, you're, you're talking about both of these things, the grief of what might be happening, you know, during the coronavirus, but just in general in a, in a tough time, mm-hmm. but also that, there are there's opportunity and there's something new emerging from that just the nature of the system sure but i can see how if you go too far into the dark that is hard for you and hard for those around you and if you go too far into the light if you're too like oh this is amazing i'm pivoting (laughs) i'm reinventing stuff and look how good this is look at the sun rising Mm -hmm. You, you can be tone deaf and a little I guess, inappropriate to those around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know as I sit here in the moment, trying to find that sweet spot, that line through those two, two sides of, of seeing the situation is a hard thing for me right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what guidance you'd give me and others around that. Yeah, I, th- I think, it's a, I think it, it can be a bit of a moving target, but mm. I, would offer, um, I would offer three things. 
the first thing that I would offer is the notion of the Stockdale paradox. Mm. Are you familiar with the Stockdale mm-hmm. paradox? Yeah. So Jim Collins, I believe, popularized this uh, paradox when he wrote Good to Great. And the Stockdale paradox is about Admiral Stockdale, who was held um, along with John McCain and others as a prisoner of war um, during the Vietnam War and what they called, um, you know, quote unquote, the Hanoi Hilton. Yes. Uh, But it was anything but, (laughs) you know, a, a nice place to be. And um, when they asked when they asked Stockdale about his time as a prisoner of war that lasted, you know, over three years, but of course he didn't know that, right? I mean, you don't know how long it's going to go on. Okay. Um, and I think this is really salient to where we are today because we also don't know how long, you know, this this shelter in place and, and quarantine is is going to go on. And so they said. Um, I said, okay, you know, who, who are the people who were really adversely impacted by this? And he said, well, that's easy. It was the optimists. And they right. were like, sorry, what did we hear you correctly? <laughs> exactly. It doesn't make it, it doesn't make sense. Right. At the, at the first blush, you're like, how's that possible? You want yeah. optimism. Yeah. And so what he talked about is uh, navigating this balance between um, faith, <clears throat> excuse me, faith and, and realism. And having a realistic sense of what's happening, staying connected to the world, to your point, you know, to your point earlier, right, of not seeming tone deaf. Mm-hmm. So find, finding a way to stay connected to what's happening in reality, and then also being able to balance that connection to reality with a sense of faith that things will get better. Right. Right. And I, and I think what that takes me into is the second of three things, which is a positive mindset at this time doesn't mean we're happy all the time. Right. That's posi- so important. I love that you yeah. said that. I'm going to yeah. say it again so people don't not hear it. It's like positive mindset doesn't mean being happy the whole time. It doesn't mean feeling all the feelings. It's, right. uh, it goes a little deeper than that. Exactly. So, the, you know, the first thing is, to, to balance um, faith and realism, right? Mm-hmm. To, to stay connected and then to always have faith that things are going to get better. The second thing is to maintain a positive attitude. And what maintaining a positive attitude means is we're going to have tough days. We're going to have tough hours. We're going to have tough weeks, right? Um, we, you know, we have not seen the full complement of the, uh, the catastrophe. Uh, yeah, I was going to yeah. use the word destruction, and I was asking myself if that was the right word, right? Like, we have not seen the full complement of the sort of cataclysmic event mm-hmm. before us at the time of this recording, and we will. And so in those tough days, right, we can cry, we can be angry, we can be despondent, we can pull the covers up over our head, and yet the only thing that we need to maintain is that we know that things will ultimately get better. Right. You know, even if they're not the way that we would like them to be today. Mm-hmm. And then I'd, I'd say the third thing is um, I've talked a lot about finding purpose in the pause. I love that phrase. What does it mean? <laughs> it means that um, another phrase that we use in the English language a lot without thinking about it is we. Um, 
say sometimes more flippantly than I'd like, um, well, you know, Michael, everything happens for a reason. Oh, that drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. That phrase drives me crazy. Same, 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 right? And so the idea here is a reason is typically something that exists outside of ourselves, Mm -hmm. right? Um, However, when we make make a sense of purpose for ourselves within this pause. Yeah. It means that we go internal as opposed to external. Yes. And we decide what meaning this has for us. Exactly. Uh-huh. Now you, you can't see it, but I'm kind of pounding my fist on the desk at this stage because because mm. I have to I'm just gonna rant for for one minute in agreement with what you're saying. I have a. I I, th- I agree completely with what they're saying, and I completely disagree with the statement "everything happens for a purpose." Because I oh, take the opposite perspective, which is nothing happens for a purpose. It's random world events and small events and stuff happening all around you all the time. It's ridiculous to think there's a purpose behind everything that's happened, in my point of view. And you have every choice to respond to everything that's happening around you with purpose, with meaning uh, in a mindful way, in a way that says, this is the person I want to be in this moment. This is the choice I'm making as to how I respond in this moment. You know, as I, as man says for meaning between stimulus and response, there's a moment and that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's one of my favorite quotes too. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you um, a personal story uh, briefly about how I learned this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, probably about a decade ago now, a little longer, uh, I was in an abusive marriage. And it was my first marriage. And, um, you know, it was, it was, you know, obviously someone I loved dearly. Otherwise, I wouldn't have married mm-hmm. him. And... Uh, that marriage ended with him nearly strangling me to death. Mm-hmm. And for a long time after that, I, would, I was searching for a reason. Sure. I was trying to understand why, how even, someone I had loved and who said that they loved me um, would also try to kill me. Yeah. It, it didn't make sense. And... I was asking that why question and I was trying to find a reason outside of myself until one day I realized no one else, including him, can, under, can, can answer this question for me. This, this is a meaning that I get to decide right. for myself, right? And anytime I think we face any kind of challenge or change or complexity, we have the power, we are in agency, we are in choice to decide what meaning we want to make of that experience and then consequently what story or narrative we want to tell ourselves. I love that. I mean, what you're pointing to is, you know, that sense of agency, that sense of authoring your own life and the power that comes with that um and the responsibility that comes with that and also to be to push it even further the the guilt and sadness that comes with that because as you just said uh, earlier on in this conversation part of what you step into in this moment is a willingness to to take ownership of choice of choice 
It's like, I get to choose here. I get to be the author. I get to be in agency. And one of the, one of the people who I love, a, a writer called Peter Block, he says, every time you make a choice, you feel guilt for the choice you didn't make. And you feel uh, anxiety around, did you make the right choice or not? That's part of the complex messiness of being an adult in your own life. Um, and against that guilt and against that anxiety comes agency, comes responsibility, comes a sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. And what I feel called to say at this moment in our conversation and, and also for our listeners is um, there's, there's, at times, a subtle but important distinction between choice and control. Oh, good. Take, and, take me into that. I'm curious about that. Yeah. So I think what's happening right now with, with this notion of a virus, right, is that for many of us, our notion of control and expectation has really been upended. Right. That, you know, that right? illusion's been stripped away nicely. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's not that we have lost control. Mm. It's that we never had it in the first place. Right. And, uh, but what we do have control over is, to your point, are things that exist within ourselves. So while we can't control the global environment, while we can't control the trajectory of this illness and a variety of other things, and oh, by the way, we never could. That was just yeah. an illusion. What we do have control over is ourselves, is the choices that we make, is our mindset, is how we show up, is how we speak to people, the type of language that we use, um, how we show up and parent our children, right? So recognizing what is within our power to influence and what is not, and the choices that we can make. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, kind of going back to your point, right, around like how do I sort of navigate uh, this, this field of, of, you know, not being overly positive, but also not being sort of like sunk into darkness. Right. Um, overall, we want to make choices that are ultimately going to make us better and not make us bitter. Our time is ticking away. And I've got a question I'd love to ask you. It shifts the focus just a little bit. Okay. But one of the things I know to be true about you is that when you were uh, doing your pre and postdoctoral fellowships, part of what you were doing was investigating the systemic impact of brain and spinal cord injury on, on people, mm-hmm. but not just on patients, but also the impact on their significant family members and relationships. Yeah. And a lot of what we've been touching on so far in the conversation has been kind of us individually and our approach to control and awareness and resilience. But I'd love you to talk briefly, if you wouldn't mind, around what role community and connection has around helping us be more resilient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what role communicate, community and connection has um, around resilience? That's it's such a it's such a multifaceted question. Right. Um, and so the first thing that I would say is, um, it's so easy for us to believe that we are alone. Mm-hmm. There are seventy billion people on this planet, and it's so easy to believe that people don't understand our experience or what we're going through. Right. And what a beautiful moment that we're in 
where we get to experience this universally uh, as, as, a, as a planetary humankind, mm-hmm. right? Um, on the one hand, the, the scale of it is overwhelming. The impact is, you know, again, I'll say devastating. Uh, but the idea that um, we are, are reconnected to the idea of our connection and our, um, our intertwined humanity yes. and getting to understand that, you know, if I get on a plane right now and decide I want to go somewhere, that that could negatively impact not only me individually, but that could have important and powerful and far-reaching negative systemic impacts for other people or people who are members of the vulnerable population. If I were to get sick and not know it and pass it on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I think we're in this moment now where our connection to one another and what that means and the power of the choices that we make and those not being just choices for ourselves, but being choices that have far reaching uh, impact. I-, I think it's more clear than it's ever been. Beautiful. You know, um, the second thing I can say is kind of a funny thing, uh, which is, um, you know, you know, that game, uh, six degrees to Kevin Bacon. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So Kevin Bacon came up with the, I don't know if you saw the hashtag on social media called I stay home for, I haven't seen that, but that's perfect. So it's, it's been a very popular hashtag that a number of, you know, mm-hmm. celebrities known, you know, well-known and unknown people alike have used, like I stay home for to really drive home the message, right? That what we can do, you know, sort of our civic duty at this time is, is, is to stay home, is to shelter in place. And so, you know, then we get to ask ourselves relative to connection, right? Yeah. Kevin Bacon came up with the I stay home for hashtag and then we stay home. Does that mean we're all one degree? From exactly. You know, are we all much more connected than even we could have imagined? Right? He's, de- he's destroyed his own meme. He's like, no. <laughs> yeah. Or just, or just taught us that we were, you know, we were always directly, you know, connected, which is beautiful. And then, and then the third thing is that connection is actually the, uh, is actually the third practice of, of right. resilient people. And so, you know, for anyone who's, you know, read the greats, you know, like, um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell and, and others, you know, we, we know that in leadership and in life, right. Um, having, you know, even one significant connection, right. Gallup tells us if we've got a close friend or even a best friend at work, yeah. Our engagement store, our engagement scores, you know, are significantly higher than they would be if we didn't have that connection. That's right. You know, Malcolm Gladwell tells us that, you know, even when we face difficulty, even if it's a desirable difficulty, as he talks about in uh, David and Goliath, that when we have some kind of connection, a mentor, a teacher, a supportive parent or friend, we do dramatically better facing challenge than we would if we didn't have that connection. And what I found in my own, what I found in my own research when I asked people about uh, how they had effectively addressed a challenge to understand what those resilient practices or behavior um, is or are, people talked about the connection. So connection, you know, in resilience in my work has two facets. One, it's the connection to ourselves, you know, the ability to listen to ourselves, to spend time reflecting, to trust our gut, to be able to cultivate and hear that still small voice within. So that connection to ourselves and our own humanity 
is tremendously important. And then as we think about that systemically relative to how do we connect outside of ourselves to our friends, to our family, to our community. And the last thing that I'll say about this is, um, you know, probably unsurprisingly, or maybe surprisingly, you know, I've, I've spent some time reading some articles about like survivalism recently, you know, like, like, what do you do when the world comes to an end kind of thing? And um, not that I think the world's coming to an end, but you know, moment I've been curious. And we think, well, I won't tell you what you think or what anyone listening, (laughs) what I think, what I think about when I think about a survivalist, right. Is like somebody who's got like a stockpile of canned goods and automatic weapons. Who's like living out in the woods, you know, off the grid by themselves. And actually what I, what came, what came up for me as I was reading these articles is that the people that are most successful in moments of, you know, call it, you know, upheaval within humanity are the people that have actually cultivated connections for themselves within the community and they know how to get food and they know what the distribution channels are and they're supporting their neighbors and themselves and so this idea of like um the sort of lone wolf survivalist um was actually a myth and people who are connected to their communities are the ones that do best beautiful that's the perfect segue because our time is up, folks asking, there are people out there who want to know more about your work, your empirical research behind resilience, the five practices of particular resilient people. Where can people find you? Yeah, um, you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Taryn with a Y, Marie. Uh, you can also check out my website, uh, which is uh, resilience, resilience with a C, dash leadership.com. And um, I'm also on other kind of traditional social channels, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Perfect. Dr. Tara Marie, it's been wonderful to talk to you. You're awesome. Thank you very much. Mm, You're awesome. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the best of MBS. You can discover more great content in MBS's newsletter and in his books at mbs.works.